Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Welcome to Development Hell. horror movie that hits VOD, countless others end up DOA. Development Hell is the podcast dedicated to unearthing these cursed horror productions. We're going to find out what went wrong and then decide if these titles still stand a shot at the green light. I am your host, Josh Korngut. I am the managing editor of Dread Central. I am also a filmmaker in Toronto, Canada. This podcast is a proud member of the Dread Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Development Hell. Today, we are talking about the HBO Max series that never was, Overlook. So this was going to be an extension of The Shining Universe by Stephen King, and this was going to be happening back in about 2020, and it never happened. And today we're going to discover why. Today we are welcoming back a returning guest judge. We have with us Jinx. Jinx, how's it going? Hey, Josh, I'm uh, I'm just <laughs> sitting down here in my dungeon having mm-hmm. a great old time, finally acclimated, guess oh. I'm an institutionalized man now, and uh, just grinning ear to ear, playing uh, playing around here in the dark, so uh, just, just appreciate That's you putting me up. Good. You know, you are always such a team player, and I'm just so excited that, you know, you're just making it work. That's so jinx of you, and I appreciate it as always and i like what you did with the carpet it's got a like a distinct pattern it's like you know i feel like this whole room has a real mood to it now so that's uh that's urine josh oh Um, it does it smells it smells like that and worse but that's okay it's what's to be expected the different topics that we're going to be going through today are of course going to include the overlook series that didn't happen but we're going to take a look at the entire extended shining universe so that's going to include the book the film, the sequel book, Dr. Sleep, the sequel film, Dr. Sleep, and then we're going to wrap it up with the Unmade Overlook series. So something that 
we've talked about, well, I've talked about before. I don't know. Have you and I ever got dug into Stephen King before, Jinx? Uh, if we did, I've forgotten about it in all the trauma <laughs> of being. Well, yeah, you've been it. through a lot. You've been through a lot, so that's to be expected. Hey, but, but I'm happy now. So you uh, see it. You see, my it's a great attitude. Or am I? Is it you know? Is it is it sarcasm or is it Stockholm? That's the question. I think it's halfway between the two, but we're going to get you to full Stockholm at some point. All right, that's that's been my 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 long term con. I'm a big Stephen King head. I think people that listen to this podcast already know that. I'll cover him at any opportunity that I can, and luckily there's plenty of it in the world of development hell. And I'm just wondering, Jinx, quick. What are our relationships, or more specifically, your relationship with Stephen King? Stephen King. So Stephen King, to me, you know, I grew up in the 80s when Stephen King was sort of experiencing his first uh, sort of mega boom of popularity. And so Stephen King just kind of always was, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and he, he, it felt like he had always been there. And so I grew up watching, uh, well, bits and pieces of his movies, you know, what, however much I could stand when I was a kid, I would listen to other people talk about them. Uh, mainly my experience growing up initially with Stephen King was hearing other people talk about, you know, uh, uh, the films and the books. And I just remember being intrigued, but also thinking that, okay, that's not for me. Like, I can't do that. You know, I, uh, Mm. I, it it sounds too scary, too weird to this, to that. And eventually as I started growing up, I, you know, and I've talked about this, I think even on this podcast before my, my sort of a relationship with horror movies, especially when I was a child and, uh, I was slowly, ever so slowly sort of, uh, brought into the fold as a fan, but, with King, I want to believe that my first honest-to-goodness experience with watching something of his, and I'm glad that it was pure King as opposed to just an adaptation of one of his works, but uh, I spent the night at a friend's house and he broke out a VHS copy of Maximum Overdrive. Oh my God. Which King directed. And you know what? I got to tell you, I loved that movie <laughs> so yeah, much. good. So, so much. And, uh, but yeah, beyond that, you know, when I, when I first started getting into reading his work, um, I started with the short stories, you know, there was like night shift, uh, Mm -hmm. nightmares and dreamscapes was another one that when I was a kid, I sort of, uh, I think I snagged a hardcover of it, uh, or rather a family member snagged a hardcover of it from, uh, like a book sale and passed it along to me. And I was like, yeah, I'll check this out. And I remember reading stuff like the night flyer and popsy and, you know, all those great stories in there, but yeah, it was just, it was sort of baby stepping my way towards cracking open the first big novel that I read of his, which is still to this day, my favorite of his works. And that is the shining. Whoa. Yeah, The Shining is my favorite King novel. It's the first King novel that I read, you know, um, and I just, I absolutely adore it. And I adore the franchise. I adore pretty much anything attached to that tale. There's something about it that I I find endlessly fascinating. And um, yeah, no, so I love it. And then after that, you know, I think, uh, I think the first King movie I ever saw on the big screen was uh, Thinner, uh, Mm. Bachman book turned into you know a movie and i i love that i love the book but uh but yeah mm-hmm. no, I, I i adore king i'm glad that he because i don't know if people really yeah and maybe they would disagree with me but it feels like there for a while that king was mega popular 
going all the way through until the late 90s. And then there was kind of a lull, like not mm-hmm. with his work, not with his output, certainly not with the quality of the stuff that he was putting out. But it just seemed in terms of like the mainstream consciousness that he receded a bit. And mm-hmm. then he came back in a big way recently. And I'm I'm so glad that he's getting kind of this, uh, you know, this second run of mm-hmm. recognition. Yeah, I like to think of it as we kind of go through peaks and valleys of Stephen King popularity in the zeitgeist. And I think yeah. we are actually right now, I think maybe we're in a bit of a valley having seen like a huge peak with the two it films and even the pet cemetery reboot. But in terms of, for me, I think the first Stephen King book I ever read proper is probably going to age me was the girl who loved Tom Gordon. I read that in in middle school and it really left an impact on me because I think it kind of works as perfect YA horror in in a way that is never talking down to its audience and respects it. Um, really amazing book, but also the short stories were an entry point for me. My two favorite that I talk about on this podcast at any chance that I get are The Jaunt, which is terrifying, and uh, Mrs. Todd's Shortcut. They're both in Skeleton Crew, and they're both just magical. Um, Funny that you say the first Stephen King novel you ever read was The Shining, because that's the most recent one that I ever actually um, read. I think it was around Halloween that I, for the first time ever, read The Shining. And it's incredible. It's terrifying. Really scary book. And people are always comparing it to the film because it's famously, you know, very different or he famously really didn't like the Kubrick adaptation because it it, it sort of went in a different direction. But reading it, I didn't necessarily feel that way myself. I felt like they definitely had a bit of a shared spirit, but we'll get into that soon. Yeah. 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 I will say when it comes to Tom Gordon, I just want to throw this out there as a possible future episode of your show. Oh, Um, I remember back in the early aughts, not long after that book came out that for the longest time, um, there was bandied about the idea of a Tom Gordon film adaptation starring Dakota Fanning. Yes. Was this the George Romero version? I don't know if it was Romero, but man, could you imagine? Really amazing. Um, Are you familiar with the most recent uh, director to get attached to The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon? Because this was about, I think, within the year. No, no, no. I think it's Lynn Ramsey from, um, yeah, we need to talk about Kevin fame. So that should be very, very interesting. And also I, the uh, Joaquin uh-huh. Phoenix film that was recent, right? Um, oh, yes. Which was, I always forget the damn title of it because it's a mouthful. Afraid, it's but, like a sentence title, like, you are not alone, or we're going to get you. But it's yeah. absolutely brilliant. I would love to see her tackle uh, mm-hmm. something from King's uh, <laughs> King's work. Yes. I Now, don't take this as fact, but I think at one point Romero was attached to producer to direct. And then after his passing, his wife kept on as a producer. And I believe she may still be producing the project to this day. I believe her name may be Chris or something like that. Does that sound familiar to you? But that estate I believe is still involved. Wow. Okay. That's pretty great. Uh, 
I would hope that George then is, uh, you know, whatever the resulting film is, I hope his name is left on as a producer for developing it in the first place. I hope so, too. It'd be really cool to see it, especially with Lynn Ramsey and Stephen King. What a trifecta. You Were Never Really Here is the name of the Lynn <laughs> Ramsey, it. Joaquin Phoenix movie, by the way. It's which an, is an impossible amazing. title to remember. Sorry. Yeah, it's just it's it's too unwieldy. But I like it. Um, Jinx, would you be into a bit of a seminar, one would say, on the original novel by Stephen King? Yeah, it hit me. Well, The Shining is a book that came out in 1977 by our favorite, Mr. Stephen King, and it was his third sort of major published novel and his first hardback bestseller. So it was a huge success for Stephen King and would eventually be made into a film. The stories and the the character and the stories are influenced by his own experiences, including the time Mr. King spent uh, a visit at the Stanley Hotel in 1974, and it also takes on the themes of his own struggles with alcoholism. So this was then turned into a 1980 film, and the book would eventually get a sequel in 2013 by the name of Dr. Sleep, which also got a film. I'm wondering, Jinx, in your own words, what would you say The Shining, the book, is about? Oh, hell. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. You sprung this on me, Jack. I had to. I had to do it. Well done. Okay. So um, I would say The Shining concerns a man named Jack Torrance and his wife, Wendy, their son, Danny, who hole up in the Grand Overlook Hotel during its off-season. Jack is a writer, and he's been given the job to perform duties as a caretaker for the Overlook while it basically sits empty and weathers out all of the, uh, the horrific winter snows and you know uh, whatnot until, well, uh, the, the hotel goes back into season. And during their time there, very strange events occur, which uh, make one believe that the hotel is likely haunted. Uh, uh-huh. Couple this with the fact that Jack's son, Danny, appears to have some sort of, would you call it clairvoyance? Mm-hmm. Uh, would you call it, um, you know, uh, uh, an extrasensory perception of the supernatural would would you call it the shining like dick Halloran does in the story for some reason i think i would okay we'll call it the shining then Mm -hmm. uh but yeah ultimately um jack's alcoholism coupled with the fact that he is manipulated by the spirits that run the overlook uh leads to a pretty intense confrontation with him and his family and Dick Halloran, who was a, uh, <laughs> I believe a chef, right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, in the film, the for sure. Yes. Uh, and it occurs to me, I haven't, even though it's my favorite King novel, I haven't read it in long enough that I've actually forgotten some mm-hmm. of the finer details. But uh, yes, poor Mr. Halloran shows up to save uh, Wendy and Danny. And unlike in the feature film, he is... Would you say somewhat successful? Yes. Uh, in this, yes, I believe so. But, but everyone, you know, by the time we reach the ending, you know, Jack, uh, Jack <laughs> goes up with the uh, the hotel in a pretty spectacular fashion, while Wendy, Danny, and Halloran uh, make it to safety, and you know, mm-hmm. the 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 wonderful cold, hard, sort of ending of that novel is that yeah you you have all these survivors left behind you have wendy you have danny you have halloran and yet 
they're all left with pretty significant scars mm-hmm. and you, you know, that they're never quite going to be the same. Well, I was going to say, and they explore that with in quite a scary way in Dr. Sleep. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yes. It's all about like, you know, Danny's trauma and how he carries that with him throughout yeah, his life. Not just trauma, but like the ghosts are with him still. Yes. The, the, the very literal demons. Yeah. Kind case. of in like the sort of in the style of insidious, like the film. Yes, they, they, they're, they're latched to him, and luckily he has successful tactics of compartmentalizing them, but they're there. Yeah, I love that idea, too. <laughs> but, uh, it's so scary. But I also love, you know, I mentioned a moment ago that Jack goes up with the uh, the Overlook. What I think is kind of fascinating, and I am certainly far from the first to point this out, but what I think is fascinating between the, well, there are many differences in approach between the book and the uh film but the book ends with jack discovering that in his uh, mania and chasing after his family he has forgotten to dump the boiler uh underneath the overlook and so Mm. it basically throttles up and it explodes and it takes the entire hotel and jack you know along with it i I forgot that that it was like an explosion or a fire in the book whereas in the film Jack basically stumbles around wildly in the dark and the freezing cold and the snow, and he winds up freezing to death. And I I love that approach. I love how that (laughs) sort of speaks to each artist's approach to the specific story. Whereas, you know, in King's version, it ends in fire and in Kubrick's version, it ends in ice. And that, cool. that totally explains their own approaches to that particular story in, in such a marvelous way, I think. Yeah, definitely wonderful. And you've got to know that Kubrick knew what he was doing with that inversion. I don't think that was um, any kind of accident. I, You know, maybe not, but I also kind of hope it was. Okay. I hope that he was just naturally sort of led to that by his own approach to it, which is in its own way kind of cold and clinical you know you read king's book and those emotions are just simmering right there on top of the surface you know like he he writes with his emotions on his sleeve i think uh, just flowing down his pen like you can mm-hmm. feel you know probably his own shame and his own anger and all of that stuff coming through jack when you read that novel mm-hmm. whereas when you watch kubrick's film kubrick's film is very cold it is very removed there is there's something quite clinical about it in a way oh, yeah. and, and it makes it terrifying, but it also kind of keeps us at an arm's length at a distance. That's so poetic jinx. I, I like that. And recently having seen sort of side by side images of the Stanley hotel and then the hotel that they used for the film, it really reflects what you're saying. The Stanley hotel is like kind of intimate and cozy looking and very charming. And then the hotel they used for the film is like, very sprawling and I don't know, kind of cold and like block like. So yeah, and I cool. love how that's kind of reflected in the uh, in Mick Garris's miniseries in the nineties. Yeah. That was actually the reason that I picked up uh, uh, the Shining in the first place uh, because I knew that miniseries was coming up. Uh, there was this great issue of TV Guide, back when TV Guide was the size of a small digest. And it had this amazing Bernie Wrightson painting on the cover of Jack Torrance basically working his way through the snow, the overlook in the background. He's got an ax in his hands. I and, know the one. Yeah, oh, God. It's, so, uh, it's funny. During the pandemic, um, I actually 
uh, track down another copy on eBay just so I could own it again. But within that TV guide, they reprinted King's prologue for The Shining called Before the Play, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point down the line here. But um, yeah, they actually, uh, the prologue was stricken from uh, King's original manuscript and it was included in this TV guide to Weird. sort of uh, lead into the, uh, you know, Garris's miniseries that was due to come out. And they also put out like a miniseries branded um, copy of The Shining, the book, uh, with uh, sort of artwork from that on the cover. And that was my that was my first copy of the book. And I read it for that. And to what, you know, to your point regarding the uh, hotels, the first time you see the overlook in the Garris miniseries, which is actually the Stanley, it's actually mm-hmm. the real place. You know, you look at it, it's just kind of, yeah, it is kind of inviting. It does look kind of charming and quaint in its own way, you know? And uh, it's like, I would, I would totally stay there. You know, oh, yeah. it doesn't look all that frightening. Whereas in Kubrick's film, the first time <laughs> you see that hotel, it's just like, nope. Ugh. Yeah. I'm trying to think of that type of architecture. That's like brutalist. It's kind of brutal. And I like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Kubrick's overlook could beat up King and Garrus's <laughs> overlook. Oh, yeah. for sure. On the but schoolyard. I, but I could never imagine the Kubrick one having topiaries. It just wouldn't have made sense. No, and it doesn't. No, no. So, and he, and he didn't. Which, make, which I think was a, probably the right move for 1980 because there was no way they could have done that realistically or at least in the style with the rest of the film. I mean, even you know they couldn't really do it in the miniseries either. Um, it was it was it's hard. It it's hard to make killer topiaries. How are you going to do that? I love Mick Garris's Shining miniseries. I really I do, do too. And I think I think it's marvelous. I think Stephen Weber is amazing in it. I mm-hmm. love that it really goes back to King's novel. I mean, hell, King wrote it, I believe. And yeah, he it, did. Like, he wrote the teleplay. There's a part of the book that I always find fascinating compared to the film, maybe because I'm queer. But so in the film, there's a part that is very infamous which is like the man dressed up as a bear giving the old man ghost a blowjob in the book you deal with some similar themes but it gets deeper into it there's like the whole section of like a man that dresses up as a dog and i always find that so interesting and scary do you remember this part specifically did it have an effect on you Yeah, it's one of those things, you know, I don't know that I ever immediately equated it to being any sort of, uh, and I'd be very curious to see if King has spoken about this as to what the significance of, you know, being, you know, two men, Mm -hmm. but I, to me, it's just that matter of there, there's something odd about that moment where one of the participants is in costume yeah. You know, but also the idea that here's a child who is stumbling upon an act that he doesn't quite understand. Yes. It's, and w- what's great yes. is in the book, I think it's written from Danny's point of view. So even though you, the reader, kind of gets it like... He he can't, He right? doesn't. So, and he knows that, something's wrong, though. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so that's what, you know, that's why it's always kind of shocking because... It's the second hand shock of like a child seeing something and being like, oh, what is that? What is going on? Like, not only are they ghosts and not only is one dressed up in a costume, but also what the hell are they doing? You know, what's with like this weird sexual dynamic? And I think it's explained in the book 
that it starts off as like hmm, like a bit of a parlor trick where everyone finds it very, very funny that he dresses up as a dog. And then it kind of evolves from there. Where I, I, I believe maybe the character kind of gets off on the humiliation and then it sort of snowballs into what I don't know. Do you think it also could be sort of like an early representation, not a great one, but of furry fetish? I didn't want to go there, but I... Should I not? I, we don't no, have to. No, it's. I <laughs> think it's totally valid. Um, okay. I would be very curious to see uh, what furry culture thinks of this moment. Um, I am very much would like to know. <laughs> yeah. If you're a furry and you're listening, please add us, because I would really like to know where you sit with this. What if that's like, uh, you know, to furry culture, what if that moment in the movie is kind of like the sacred text to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's not, though. Like, I have a feeling that they might not love it. Just, I don't know. But as a gay person, I'm not, like, uh, offended by it in any way. I find it very, I don't know, like, liminal, salacious, kind of uncanny. But I love it. And I've always loved it. I always, I've always thought, like, goddamn. Although I'm sure it's there's something vaguely homophobic about it because they're going with like, what's the most uncomfortable sort of bizarre thing you could show? And and part of that would be two men in a sexual act. Yeah, I. I if that's the case, I would hope that it at least, and not that this would make it any better in a sense of like the impact that it has, but mm-hmm. I would hope that that wasn't King's intention. I don't think it was King's. No, I do think maybe it was Kubrick's that that Kubrick is playing on our, or at least 1980s discomfort with homosexual behavior. Could be. Although I think Kubrick and sex is such a fascinating sort of like Mm. (laughs) uh, area to pursue anyway. You know, when you think about (laughs) something like eyes wide shut, it's like, yeah, I was going to be like, what do you mean? Like, but then of course eyes wide shut. That's the, that's the text of Kubrick's and sex. Um, yeah. In the book, when you're dealing with that character or that ghost that's dressed up as a dog, he says some crazy shit to Danny. Like, I believe he like threatens to like chew off his genitals and like, it's pretty scary stuff. It's like, he's, he's really going for it when, and that third act of the book where, where all of the supernatural really starts to unravel. Yeah, and you know, again, that goes to approach where that's where King goes with that idea, with that moment, with that that part in the story, and that that potential threat. You know, mm-hmm. it's in your face. It's it's mm-hmm. heightened emotion. It's screaming, or you know, it's threatening. It's it's uh, oh my god. Yeah. You know, whereas in the Kubrick film, <laughs> you know, he there they are nowhere near one another. They have no interest in stopping what they're doing, getting up. Uh, and racing after him. No, like he, not at all. In or a way, I guess it's is, Wendy. Yeah, yeah. In a way, he is completely safe in that moment, but it's utterly terrifying at the same time, yeah. uh, just playing on his reaction and the fact that this is something that should not be in that moment, you know, and that he should not be witnessing it. And so, again, I, I, I love the dichotomy there. I love that, you know, uh, how King uses that moment in his story to uh to portray terror uh-huh. and how he gets at that terror yeah. whereas kubrick is more again you know we've already said it very removed 
Very. Yes, it's true. In the book, it's it, it's just way more action-packed. And it's against the boy. And in the film, it's not. It's against Wendy, who's not loving what she's seeing. Another th- part of the book that they delve deeper than either of the films do are the lady in the bathtub. They do, we like, her backstory is so sad in the book. It really struck me when reading it this year, how she is this wealthy woman that comes to the hotel with a young lover and she's just like a bit of a drunk. And when the lover who I think is like maybe even underage or just a lot younger than her finds another girl and kind of leaves her. um, I think she commits suicide or dies by alcohol intake or something really bad. And it makes it so much scarier. Meanwhile, she's already one of the most scary uh, characters in cinema history. I love her. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was she, her name? She has a name in the book. Is I forget. It, uh, Do you remember? I could look it up if you want me to. Is it Laura? Lauren? Lorraine? Something like that? Hold on. Let me find. Um, Leah. Leah Bedlam. Oh, no. Okay. That's the actress. Sorry. I'm sorry. The actress's name is Leah Bedlam. Is best known for playing the super sexy babe in the bathtub. No, that's oh, a, yeah. That's got to be a stage name. Yeah, I, it doesn't sound accurate to me. I do remember her being scary in the McGarris version too. Like, yes, like, and it's uh, Cynthia Garris, right? His wife who played. Is that, uh, is that his wife? Yes. Yeah. Cool. That's I cool. Just remember one of my earliest Fangorias. Uh, I it was actually on that, and I believe it was uh, the cover story, and she was actually the uh, the centerpiece on the cover, and they talked about. Uh, because obviously she's beautiful in the film, but then when she turns, uh, and I love that it was the same actress playing both characters, I believe, uh-huh. um, or both versions of that character. But I just remember reading <laughs> in high school, like uh, sitting in the back of like my study hall or whatever, reading how they made that miniseries and noting that the way they made her skin so translucent, they actually had these ridiculously like crazy thin layers, like these thin appliances. And they would glue oh. them in place with uh, KY jelly. Ew. And, Ooh. Yeah. And it's Ooh. like, so it would give it this weird sort of like that layered gooey look. And uh, <laughs> I just remember, uh, you know, explaining to a friend who was into movies like that at the same time. I was just like, yeah. And then they use KY jelly to actually glue the blah, 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 blah. In, in the, in which version? In the, in the, uh, the, the Garrus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I remember that happening and uh, actually explaining it in whatever class we were in and uh, just a, a, a nosy teacher overhearing and just being like, why are you talking about KY Jelly? What? Oh, yeah. I mean, and you had a good reason, actually. You, re- you had like, one of the few excuses. Wait, wait, wait. I can explain. <laughs> By the way, I have an answer for you. Her name was Lorraine Massey. Lorraine. Okay, cool. And mm-hmm. yeah, her backstory is quite different from, uh, well, some of the other approaches to, well, for example, I'm sure we'll, I hope we'll get around to it at some point, but talking about unmade, uh, you know, projects in the shining verse, uh, Glenn Mazzara actually wrote a prequel film that Warner brothers sadly never made called the overlook hotel. And part of his version of that story tells a completely different origin story for the woman in the bathtub. Oh, really? Because I'm on it now. And apparently, and I don't remember this specifically, but in the book, 
So she was known to seduce young bellboys to having sex in her room and then eventually does commit suicide by setting her wrists in the bathtub, which I guess, of course, makes sense. So what was her backstory in, in the version you're talking about from the Overlook Hotel? So, um, and a little bit of background on that. Uh, about a decade or so ago, uh, Warner Brothers was looking at doing a follow-up to The Shining, and one of the possible approaches was to do a prequel. And so they they opened up pitches, and according to Glenn Mazzara, who ultimately won the job, Glenn Mazzara, by the way, worked on uh, The Walking Dead during some of its earlier seasons. He did uh, Damien, which is a massively mm-hmm. underloved and underappreciated uh, show, uh, which is an extension of uh, the Omen franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, he noted that a lot of the pitches went to the Grady twins and doing, you know, the iconography of the two little girls and all of that. And he went back to, uh, again, talking about that shining prologue before the play, he went back to the very beginning of that story to the man who actually built the Overlook hotel. And that idea fascinated him. He was like, you know, we always see haunted houses in movies. He was like, I wanted to tell a story about the man who builds the haunted house. Cool. And I was like, fuck yes. Why can't this movie exist? Yeah, uh, that's I was, good. I was lucky enough to talk to him. Uh, I did a piece for bloody disgusting for phantom limbs about the overlook hotel. And so his story concerned Bob T Watson, who was kind of a robber baron type who, carved out a hunk of a mountain with the sole purpose of putting that hotel there and uh, making it like this big shining beacon in the wilderness. And uh, in doing so, we find out when he did it, you know, there was kind of a Donner party incident that had happened on that land before. And it's just, there's this feeling that the land is cursed, you know, that there is tragedy meant to happen there time and time again, and it will replay itself over and over and over. And so we we follow the story of Bob T and his wife and his young sons as they are living in this hotel, as it's built up around them. There's this amazing montage, I think, at the end of the first act when the hotel literally builds itself up around them as he's explaining where everything is going to go, you know, and over here is going to be a ballroom. And then you see the ballroom built up in its place, you know, and then so on and so forth. And we get all the way to opening night and Bob T's poor son through a horrific accident, uh, winds up dying in a very, very bloody way. He, uh, he chokes on something, I believe a piece of steak and this being like, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, something like that. Uh, I don't think the Heimlich maneuver had been created. So there is a doctor there who tries to do a tracheotomy to pull the steak out And the boy either possessed or just in, you know, being utterly manic because he's dying. He grabs hold of the knife the moment it pierces his skin and tries to pull it away. And he winds up opening his entire throat in front of his father and mother. And he bleeds out on the table there. Oh, no. Yeah. And so it just gets horrible from there. And it feels like, you know, it doesn't hit any of the same beats of The Shining necessarily but it feels like there's a similar arc there where you know they they start to all go a little bit mad they're all being played with by the various uh spirits that roam the overlook who existed there before the overlook was ever built which i think is such a cool idea um anyway by the time you get to the final act bob t winds up uh killing his son and his wife 
and himself. And um, at the end, I believe it's revealed that they are... So somebody actually purchases the hotel and renovates it and they're going to reopen it and basically forget about the tragedy that had befallen, you know, the family who lived there before. Because uh, the place, it, it had never quite taken off because of the tragedy with the son. Nobody wanted to stay in this hotel. So it wasn't a matter of the hotel being empty because it was off season. It was empty because nobody wanted to fucking stay in this place. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, with Bob T and his wife and everybody, you know, dying, it's just nobody wanted to touch it. But eventually somebody comes in, they renovate it, they're going to reopen it to the public. And on opening day, when people are bustling about, what's so great is that Bob T is you know i think he's like a bellboy you know and the wife is like tending the desk and the son is like doing this they've been absorbed into the hotel and now they're a part of it you know and uh we find out that bob t's wife's sister you know she she comes back to the hotel to look it over the site you know of her family's death as it were and she winds up renting a room and she is drowned in the bathtub um Oh. by her uh, her sister uh with the implication being that one of them will become the woman in the in the bathtub uh which oh, i, I think it. is such a neat sort of lead up to the events of the shining uh apparently there was going to be a moment to um where bob t sits in the bar and he is called over by a gentleman who is sitting there and we're meant to understand that it was the guy who was the head of the Donner like party that resorts to cannibalism and murder, you know, amongst themselves that kind of cursed this land. And Glenn Mazzara basically wrote this big monologue about this guy sitting there talking about the evil of the place and the evil in men. And, uh, you know, all of this wonderful, it's a wonderful monologue. Uh, it's, I wish that script would leak and get out there, but, um, he wrote it with an eye with the hopes of it being uh, read by Jack Nicholson. He wanted Nicholson to actually do a cameo. And he was like, so there would be this idea that Jack Torrance or this guy who was the head of this party before the overlook was ever there. You know, he is cycling through all of these ages, like over and over and over again, he is cursed to constantly walk that land in different forms, which kind of would explain more about the Kubrick movie in a Mm -hmm. way, um, in a, in a marvelous way, but yes, anyway, sorry, I'm taking the long way around here. Uh, overlook hotel script is fucking marvelous it would have made an amazing movie uh but just at about the time that they were going to get to the point where they were going to pull the trigger on it or not stephen king published dr sleep and then Mm. all of a sudden you had a stephen king pinned shining sequel that you could adapt instead and so they went with that yeah that sucks i mean it's great that we have dr sleep but it kind of sad that that got eradicated from canon because that sounds beautiful oh it would have been it would have been truly amazing i think and plus you know they were mm-hmm. looking at i don't think he was actually going to do it uh he said you know the thing with the sons like he was a father so he didn't want to do a role where he had to watch his son die in front of him and possibly murder his other son but they <laughs> had approached brad pitt to be the lead And so you can just imagine if Warner brothers was willing to put the sort of money into this movie that would have made them feel comfortable approaching somebody like Brad Pitt to star in it. 
you yeah. can only imagine who would ultimately have played that role, you know, like somebody massive, like an A-lister, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can only imagine something like, you know, could you imagine the Overlook Hotel starring Matthew McConaughey? I, I actually think that would work. I do too. I, I, think, I think it would be would amazing. Be yeah, I think that would be really cool. Or, you know, anyone British. Um, yeah, because <laughs> I was going to ask you, what do you think? What do you think has sort of stained this land? And I guess you answer it from his perspective, which is, it was this Donner Party incident that sort of cursed this land. But what do you think it is in the book? Do they ever explain why this hotel is the way that it is? You know, I don't think there's anything concrete given. I always like the idea of just, you know, the notion of bad land, you mm-hmm. know, that there are just places on earth that you should not go. I love that. Uh, very it, Stephen King. Yes, less it swallow. I mean, you know, fourteen oh eight. Like there's Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery is a, a great one too. You know, there there are so many uh, places in King's kind of Uber. You know, you have the idea of the thinnies. You know, the spots yeah. between worlds where things can leak through. You have uh, stuff like the mist. I was just going to bring it up. Yeah, yeah totally. So, um, and it so it feels like it's definitely. You know, if you look at it hard enough in King's work, then, yeah, there's going to be an explanation there. You kind of get it in a way. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I love not knowing. I think it's scarier yeah. not knowing what the fuck is going on there. Yeah, you see his... Would you would you agree with me when I say this is where you see some of King's Lovecraft influences? Oh, 100%. Which, which he has, obviously, like, often. But he, he does it... Um, I don't know with a, with class you don't see you don't see through too much and I like that. Yeah, I love that he's sort of you know he's he's it's all the rage now in comic book universes. But I love that King messed around with the idea of multiverses and mm-hmm. you know multiple. I remember uh, when I was a kid, those big hardcovers came out. Uh, it was such a big deal when they came out. But uh, the hardcover releases on the same day. There was a new Stephen oh, yeah. King novel called Desperation yes. and a yep. new Richard Bachman novel called The Regulators. Yep. And you could push the hardcovers together and the artwork lined up. <laughs> yes. Very Sutter Kane, you know? It's good. Uh, yeah. And so, but I love that idea that you have two novels featuring the same characters in two entirely different settings and two entirely different stories. And you realize like, oh, these are different realities. These it's are so different- genius. Yeah, I think he called them shadow novels, which I like. I love that. Which is, I've never read The Regulators, but I, I did read Desperation, which is one of the most chaotic Stephen King books I've ever read. It has like, it has one of the most beautiful endings for one of his protagonists. I uh, The writer <laughs> character with yeah. the shotgun shell and the hammer and his final <laughs> like hurrah. And they do it in the movie, and I like the movie. I really do. And I, I do think too. Ron Another Perlman, McGarris joint. Exactly, yeah. And I, I think Garris really, really did a great job with bringing yeah. that to the screen. Uh, Ron Perlman is perfect just... Perfect casting. It's oh like absurdly God. perfect casting. But yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do love that idea in King's work, though, that you have characters that repeat. And recently, you know, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about this show later, but... When we uh, we had Castle Rock, yeah, we are gonna get. But yes, we had. Was it Bill Skarsgård? Uh, that's is that the younger one? No, I think so. He is. Yeah, he is okay. of the Skarsgård clan. 
who is apparently going to be the crow uh, yep. coming up. And, you know, I'm, I'm very curious. He's, he's a marvelous actor and I'm sure he's going to uh, do a great job, but I think so too. Don't need a crow remake. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I well, <laughs> we don't, we don't the, know. The crow is sacred to me. So yeah, I, yeah. I get a little, but at the same time, like if you're just going to go back to a bar's graphic novel and adapt it, you know, but, maybe but more I mean, it's not called there. crow. So, you know, they're not doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So it, but, it'll be curious. But um, anyway, Bill Skarsgård in Castle Rock plays a character called the kid who is basically found underneath the Shawshank uh, prison. And you you eventually get into a story that involves multiple universes and you find out that this kid is pretty malevolent and he might even be the man in black. He might even be, oh. you know, Randall Flagg, like that guy in King's oh. Fiction who is the ultimate bad guy, right? Which I thought was so neat considering. And there's even this thing in Castle Rock where the kid had not been seen in over two and a half decades, just over two and a half decades, like say 27 years or so. I knew. Yeah. And they Which cast is what? Bill Skarsgård in the role after Bill Trolls. Skarsgård had just played Pennywise the clown in Andy Muschietti's, you know, big, you know, yeah, uh, of course. Two, two it films. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, okay, so I don't know what they're doing here. What does that mean? It's so, tr- and then of course they're never going to get any more. I feel like that's rotten and kind of trollish, but it but, is genius. But then Stephen King just a week ago on Twitter asked everyone if they thought that the man in black, that Randall flag. And, you know, I forget how he set it up, but he was like, you know, people are asking if screen uh, rant, I think he was talking to. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where he said something like, uh, you know, who's the scariest villain or best villain or yeah. Randall know? flag or Pennywise the clown. And he was like, and why don't they ask if they're one in the same? Right. Like and if they are one in the same, then you had <laughs> another scars guard playing Randall Flagg in the recent stand oh, series. Wow. Oh, I'm down getting a headache. You have Bill Skarsgård playing the kid who is essentially like, you know, the man in black or Randall Flagg, who also played Pennywise in another film. I feel like I'm Charlie Day with like all of the uh, the diagrams behind me and the strings yeah. connecting it. Yep, yep. That's but, it. It, but it feels right, you know? Well, I mean, they're making us do this. They're, yeah. You're not going to get this, I don't think, but it's very like Taylor Swift and her fans, you know, leaving us these little breadcrumbs. I am not a Swift fan. I'm going to delete that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I will say about Castle Rock, and I know we're going to get there, but maybe I should hold off. But I will say that there is a marvelous shining sequel tease buried in Castle Rock that we should probably mention at some point. Oh, interesting. I have not watched Castle Rock, so I would want to know more about that. But we're going to get there pretty, pretty soon. I think before we do, I kind of want to wrap up on The Shining, the original film. Because I think while I wanted to go sort of deeper into it, I do think we've tackled a lot about it. Um, I guess my question for you is, because I think this is sort of always out there, is film versus book. Where do you land? Like, do you have a preference or, or do you see them sort of as two different things? How, how do you compare the two? I think, um, I 
think the novel is a perfect novel. I think the movie is a perfect film. Um, mm-hmm. I think the film is a terrible adaptation. adaptation. Yeah. And a masterpiece of a film. Um, I think that um, the book has way more heart and it feels way more satisfying in its own way. Uh, it's more emotional. Way more emotional. Yeah. And I feel like, and it definitely has something to say, like um, at its heart. Whereas with Kubrick's film, uh, Kubrick's film just works purely. And I'm not saying that Kubrick's film says nothing. Like, fuck, they made a documentary about what it could possibly mean. Um, and the answer was nothing. Yeah, exactly. But uh, with Kubrick's film, I think it's just so marvelously made and so fucking frightening. And uh, it's 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 just a masterclass in uh, in in suspense, and it's, I adore it. It's really scary. He has this quote about making it that I read earlier today that gave me the chills, and I want to share it with you guys here. So, speaking on the theme in the movie, uh, this is what Kubrick had to say: "There's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. One of the things that horror stories can do is show us the archetypes of the unconscious." We see the dark side without having to confront it directly. And I think that's exactly what he did with this movie. It's like peering into the abyss of human darkness, but we don't know what it means. So it's kind of like being that little boy in the hallway, seeing the furry ghost and knowing that something is terribly, terribly wrong, but not really having the ability to put your finger on why or what, just knowing that something is off and i think that's what the movie feels like to me yeah and i get that i i too wonder like if maybe you know in a strange way like you watch the first half of the shining and you wonder if kubrick is even remotely interested in the supernatural at all and if he's maybe just more interested in making the the ghosts and the demons uh you know, just simply representations of Jack's own demons that he's battling with. And certainly in both tellings of the story, book and movie, that's the case. But it it feels like maybe Kubrick was almost a little embarrassed at the more genre leaning stuff in the movie. But then, you know, you get to the final act and he leans full bore into it. And it's like, well, no, that's not, it's not really the case at all. But I I wonder, I am reminded of that, uh, there's this great story that Stephen King tells where it was, uh, it was the middle of the night and he's woken up by uh, a phone call and it was uh, Stanley Kubrick on the other end. This was during the, uh, the development of the film and Kubrick just out of the blue, he asked him, he was like, do you believe in God? Well, and King said, you know, yes, yes I do. And, (laughs) and Kubrick just said, I don't and hung up. And (laughs) it's like, you know, you you can kind of see that in <laughs> yes. each telling of that story. Big time. It kind of does feel why these two stories are at odds with one another. <laughs> they're Yeah, they're completely inverted, but that's why it works so nicely. I love that story. Um, yeah, it's mm-hmm. great. I, 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 if only it could have been recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think they ended up being such good friends at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen King's a bitter Betty about it. Just he is, so bitter Betty. And I get it, like, in a way, you know, hopefully, and I think I'd read this somewhere, that Mike Flanagan's uh, Dr. Sleep, in trying to um, 
reconcile the Kubrick film with the King novel and, you know, sort of synthesize them, uh, you know, before, or actually during while he was making Dr. Sleep, you know, into one vision, uh, that it actually sort of made King feel a little better about the yep. Kubrick film. So, and I've I love that. that. I, I hope that it's true because King deserves to feel better better because it's his baby but yeah i mean it's a brilliant as you said terrible adaptation perfect film agreed agreed i think now that you've led us down into dr sleep boulevard i wouldn't mind talking a little bit about it before we head into the land of hbo's overlook series yeah so dr sleep is this 2013 follow-up to the shining where you see danny torrance as an adult sort of coping with his trauma of having survived the initial I don't know, actions in The Shining. And now he uh, eventually is led back to the Overlook and also has to sort of battle with this group of psychics called the True Knot who are out there trying to kill kids because it gives them extended life. And it's kind of like, a, I don't know, a mixed bag of different storylines. Have you, have you read Dr. Sleep, the book? I have to admit, I have not read the book. I wanted to when it first came out, and for whatever reason, I put it off. And I just, I haven't found my way to it. And um, I, I guess I always wanted to revisit The Shining before I did that. And I haven't read that book in a while. I kind of want to read them back to back. If that was ever going to happen, you know, anytime soon, I, I, I'm sure it would have happened right before the film came out. And it, you know, I just. I was so busy, I didn't get around to it, and I feel like a bad King fan is what I'm saying. No, you're a good King fan, because you, between the two of us, I believe you're the one that sort of has more love in your heart for the film adaptation. But I think that has something to do with the different versions that we've encountered. Is this correct? So you're a fan of the director's cut of Dr. Sleep? Is this true? So I will say, leading up to the film adaptation that Mike Flanagan did a few years ago, um, I don't know if you remember, but they remastered the first film, uh, the Kubrick film, in 4K. And before they plunked it down onto disc, they released it in theaters for like a one-night Fathom events showing or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I went to go see it on the big screen. I already loved the movie, but let me tell you, like watching that on a large screen, it's it's a completely different experience. It's marvelous. Yes. And um, so there was that. And then I think at the very end of it, there was this great little featurette with uh, Flanagan and King talking about Dr. Sleep. This was around the same time that um, the the second trailer for the film had come out, which uh, the second trailer for Dr. Sleep was like one of the best movies that came out that year. So I could not have been more pumped to see Dr. Sleep. And I get to the theater. It's like, it's not even opening night. It's like premiere night. It's like the Thursday seven or eight o'clock showing. Right. And I'm, I'm grinning ear to ear. I can't wait to watch it. And cut to like two hours and 15, two hours and 30 minutes later. And I walk out and I was just kind of like, Oh, you know, it's was, it was good. It was fun. Mm. I, was, I was, you know, yeah, it was, uh, new. but Ewan McGregor was good and the performances were good. And I have a crush on Rebecca Ferguson and her little hat. And, yeah. you know, that's, um, you know, that's about it. That's, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was fine. It was three stars. fine. And being a completist, uh, of course I picked up the 4k when it came out only to find that it had the, uh, director's cut on it, which was 30 minutes longer. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to watch Flanagan's cut. The man hasn't let me down yet, uh, except the theatrical version. 
I, I love all of his previous stuff. I, uh, I love Absentia. I love uh, Oculus. I adore Before I Wake. The mm-hmm. Haunting of Hill House, even though I hadn't seen it at that point, is brilliant. So I pop in his director's cut. And 20 minutes in, like you just feel that it's a better version of the film. It moves better. It, it feels like it has weight. Like uh, it's broken up into on-screen chapters. Nice. Uh, which actually, if, I, if I'm getting this correct, actually uses the, uh, the chapter titles from King's book. Cool. Um, it's 30 minutes longer, and yet it feels like it moves better than the chopped up version. There, the characters' arcs are better. There's more heart. Uh, it's just everything about it on every conceivable le- uh, level just works better. And so this movie, and I've seen the director's cut a few times now. So this film in its theatrical cut went from a movie that I thought was, you know, fine eh, to being a fucking masterpiece. I think it's Flanagan's best work. Um, and I, I love the haunting of Hill house. I love midnight mass. I think Dr. Sleep is his masterpiece. Uh, I think it stands alongside Kubrick's movie pretty damned well. And, uh, I cannot say enough good things about it. I adore it. So Josh, I know you, you, you have some hard feelings towards it based on its theatrical, you know, version. And I get that. Mm-hmm. All I'm saying is, is that I think the director's cut will make you a fan. I really do. Can we make a deal? And here's my deal. I will 100% watch it and report back if you promise to watch Blind Manor and report back. Uh, okay, fair. I will. Because <laughs> I would have to say, and I've said it before, that is my favorite Flanagan project. Personally. That is my, you know, that's my Flanagan blind spot. And I think I was kind of put off by, like, look, I, I know he was involved with it. He developed it. Uh, the other directors, like I believe, uh, Axel Carolyn directed yeah. episodes and I love her. Uh, yeah. and it has a lot of great people involved. Uh, so I'm certain it's great. It was just one of those things where he directed every episode of the first season. And so we all talked about, Hey, isn't it great when directors do that? Like, uh, Carrie Fukunaga, who did, uh, all eight episodes of the first season of true detective. Like it's great when a filmmaker, directs every episode because it feels like a more cohesive. singular cohesive yeah. vision. And then you get to Bly Manor and it's just kind of like, uh, okay. Yeah. He started it off and then other directors picked it up and I was just kind of like, Oh, so it's like every other season of television. Okay, cool. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, and here's the thing. I, that's a silly, mm-hmm. silly reason <laughs> no. to not watch it. It really is. And I understand that. I'm just saying that's, what's kind of, Listen, we both have our baggage, okay? (laughs) Uh, And we're both going to put our baggage down, and we're going to watch them. And um, we're both going to report back. But yeah, I'm very interested on revisiting uh, the the director's cut of Dr. Sleep. Everything that you're saying to me does make sense, because I trust Flanagan so much, based on everything I've seen. And it does kind of feel a little disjointed, the theatrical version, which is already long enough, by the way. But. Well, it, it feels like a flat tire. It it really does. It feels like it, it doesn't operate the way it should. It's kind of airless. It just, uh, you know, it's just kind of blah, you know, whereas you watch the version that he intended and it's like, oh, right. That's why he's a master. Like he he 
and you know, already stop, a master. Stop fucking with this stuff, Warner Brothers. Like, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. You're going to have to lose that fifth showing of the day in every movie theater. But you know what? At least the movie you're going to be showing is a movie that people are going to want to come back and revisit time and time again. And that they're certain to pick up on physical media or stream again down the road. You know, instead, you, you hack a half hour out of it. And it just, it's it sucks as a result. Listen, this is the era of TikTok, okay? This is not the era of three-hour epics. Um, and yet, every Marvel movie <laughs> is like three oh, yeah. hours long. You're right. And they make That's... a billion dollars. You're so fucking right. Uh, you're, I'm going to have to take, I'm going to have to check this out. I am fascinated. Doctor Sleep. Full... Oh, and also, like, even the theatrical version, some really scary stuff in it. The Lorraine Massey, like, lady in the bathtub stuff, like, chilling so scary and uh just the idea that she follows him like it's bad enough that he had to deal with her in the hotel but then there's no escape from bathtub lady like come on never and then ultimately bathtub lady's own um fate is terrifying getting trapped inside of a little box for all of eternity well well you know what don't scare kids bathtub lady bathtub lady Get it together, bathtub lady. Um, yeah, and the death of um, the poor kid from Room <laughs> was horrifying. Is that worse than the theatrical in the director's cut? Um, the, um, I forget I, his name. I've only ever seen the theatrical cut once. I feel like it was in the director's cut a little rougher. Like it feels it's like it goes on already. forever. It does feel it in the in the theatrical one. It felt like it went on forever, which honestly ballsy. Killing kids in Hollywood is already a ballsy move, but then the way that they did it in Doctor Sleep is just brutal. Yeah, I mean they they make you feel it in uh, in in that scene, and that's you know, and that's what makes the true knot so terrifying. Is that what I love about those characters is that they feel like family. They love one another. They look out for one another. They're yeah. they're funny and they're charming and they're charismatic and they're kind to one another. And you know, it's kind of like the the this is a weird parallel to draw, but you think of something like uh, the Fireflies in the Rob Zombie movies. Yeah. You know, when it's just them, they they seem cool. Yeah. But it's just that they have no regard for anybody else. It's no, especially not kids who are psychics. Exactly. And so when she, uh, there's that ice cold moment where the kid is pinned down to the ground and he says something like, are you going to hurt me? And she just gets right in his face and she's like, yes, it's just, Ugh. Ugh. Ugh, it's so scary. And she's so good. There was on Twitter, a really funny behind the scenes image of her and the kid. He's just making a funny face. I uh, I love her, and I'm glad to see her really getting her due post Dune. Yeah, she's brilliant. I I love Rebecca Ferguson. I love her uh, character in the Mission Impossible movies. Like she brings a lot of class to those films. Well, I have not seen them, but I will take your word worth, on it. Worth watching for her alone. That's enough of a self for me. And on that note, how would you feel if we head into the Overlook series itself? We should, right we after should. we mention one thing. Yes. So since we're talking about Flanagan, and we're talking about The Shining, and we're talking about Unmade Projects, 
one of my white whales for phantom limbs uh the the uh for listeners out there who don't know i write a column series for bloody disgusting concerning unmade uh horror movie sequels and remakes that were developed but sadly never came to be one of my white whales is to chat with mike flanagan about his shining prequel halloran that was all uh, going to be about Dick Halloran uh, before the events of The Shining. And I don't know much about it. I don't know what the hell it was going to be. I just know it was something he was looking at. And man, I wish we had gotten it because Flanagan rules. And I'm certain that him playing in that sandbox again would yield <laughs> something else marvelous. But uh, sadly, <laughs> there's very, very little information out there. I'm almost glad it didn't happen, just so we can get a Phantom Limbs on it one of these days. You know? Almost worth it. And, not to get give too much away, but Flanagan will come up again in this episode before the time is up. So, we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, as we've promised this entire time, there was going to be an HBO Max limited series based on the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. So all the way back in 2019, J.J. Abrams and his production company Bad Robot Productions signed a massive ginormous deal with Warner Media. I think it was worth somewhere around $250 million. And reportedly, he was going to produce original series and films for Warner for their various divisions. And this would have included HBO and, of course, Warner Brothers Pictures. One of the original titles announced for this deal was going to be a series simply titled Overlook. And it was going to be a series going back to this iconic location from the Shining film and book. So Overlook marked the, I think it was going to be the fourth collaboration for Bad Robot that was going to be in the King universe. Uh, I believe they'd already done the horror series Castle Rock, which we've talked about today. There was the Hulu limited series 112263, based on a really incredible later career book by Stephen King. And then I think most recently was the Apple TV or Apple TV Plus show, Lisey's Story, based on one of probably the most personal novels by Stephen King, and maybe even his favorite, if I'm not mistaken. And then, of course, we were going to get this Overlook series. So J.J. Abrams and Stephen King were really in bed together in terms of making TV shows in the late 2010s. Um, This show was reportedly going to be 10 episodes, a 10-episode series directed by, you know, Abrams and company. Castle Rock co-creator and executive producer Dustin uh, Dustin Thomason, as well as co-executive producer Scott Brown, were going to potentially write the Overlook series. I've heard people compare what was going to happen with Overlook to what A&E did with the Bates Motel prequel series, sort of how they approached Psycho based on this iconic Psycho location with the Bates Motel. So, according to Variety Online, Overlook, the prequel series, was going to explore untold and terrifying stories of the most famous haunted hotel in American fiction, which I think is true. Um, But it remains to see what or if any of the original ghosts mentioned in Stephen King's novel, as we were talking about like Lorraine Massey, any of them, the twins, were they going to be explored or were we going to see completely new stories? It was never actually reported. 
Unfortunately, this is not a series that has yet to come to fruition. So by August of the same year, it didn't take too long, HBO Max executives, who apparently liked the project, did state that they felt like it wasn't appropriate for their current slate and decided not to move forward at Warner Brothers. It's reported that the television series um, is still being shopped around to other networks. A rumor is that it could land at Netflix, which is an interesting location for a Stephen King property, considering how in bed they are with Mike Flanagan, leading fans to speculate wildly that if Netflix did land the Overlook series, could Flanagan end up directing or show running? What do you think? Do you think if it landed at Netflix, there's a chance that Flanagan would, would hop on the project? I I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I would think if Flanagan were going to do something again in that realm, he would probably want to. I and this is pure assumption, right? Uh, I would I would have to imagine he would want to build it from the ground up. He seems like a storyteller that is more keen to do that than be a gun for hire. You know, um, mm-hmm. if you know, so, now. because Overlook, it sounds like if they're shopping it around, it isn't. It's got to be more than just a title. You know, I would, I would, I would, I would imagine not. Who knows? But you never know. Like, I, I think that would be great because I would love to see it can be read as a direct sequel to that film, even though he had to recast a lot of the roles. Even when he did recast, he mm-hmm. used the same costumes. Obviously, you know, uh, some very similar looking actors. Similar look. I mean, you know, if 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 he wanted to look past what Kubrick had done and, uh, you know, hew closer to, you know, simply hew closer to King's work, he wouldn't have cast Alex Esso as Wendy, who is, you know, the mm. Wendy of the film is not the Wendy of the novel. They're quite different, both of them. Yeah, uh, one's blonde and one's not. <laughs> yeah, and even personality-wise, too, like, I, I feel like Rebecca de Mornay in the Mick Garris... Is way closer. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so, but he he didn't go that route. He chose Alex Esso, and she she looks quite a lot like Shelley Duvall once she's made up. It's scary. Bit, but the her performance and her voice were insanely accurate to do that. So, you know, I, I, I really appreciated the fact that he did his own thing, but he kept the Kubrick film canon. And if there's going to be more shining verse related stuff, I kind of hope they do that same thing. I hope that we keep all of that as canon. I do too. With it. So, and, and that's mm-hmm. what hurts about, you know, like Glenn Mazzara's The Overlook Hotel would have been such a marvelous big screen, big budget prestige horror film. And I, I would hope they would have done the same thing. You know, there is a moment in it where uh, Mazzara actually wrote the uh, famous photograph being taken, you know, with uh, with everybody in it. You see Jack in at the very end of the first of film, right? 1921. How the fuck is he there, right? And so... <laughs> In Mazzara's script, he writes that moment where that photo is taken, but there is like a ladder in the way, like standing in front of. So like you wouldn't be able to see the person standing in Jack's place so you could keep the movie canon still. You could wonder like, okay, right behind that ladder, that's where Jack is standing, like toasting, right? Uh, And you could only imagine, could you imagine sitting in a theater 
And, you know, a, a packed house and a couple of hundred people all at once trying to crane their heads around the ladder to see behind it, you know, not being able to. I, I love that idea. It's scary. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I'm taking the long way around of just saying whatever they do to follow up The Shining, I, I, I hope they follow Flanagan's model and they stay true to what's come before. You know, it would be cool in in line with the first two seasons of the haunting of hill house how they're going or of the haunting series oh, how they wow. take classic works Josh, of literature no yeah if yes. they do the haunting of the overlook hotel i somebody cut you a check just <laughs> my god yes because it, it's totally in line with taking a classic piece of gothic literature just a little bit more modern and adapting it into the series and it would work so well. Somebody needs to work up that artwork of like, uh, you know, <laughs> pitch the, deck. Yeah, well, there's the, uh, you know, the haunting of Hill house. I think they did it with blind Manor too, but you have the, the house itself, right. Sitting in frame and the lit up, uh, windows essentially acting as eyes because the bottom half of the image is somebody's face, right? Uh-huh. S- somebody needs to do that. Make that artwork with the Overlook Hotel, with the uh, not the Stanley, but the one from, you know, the uh, the the film, the Kubrick film, and uh, yeah, put the lower half of like somebody's face underneath, and just do the graphic. Call it the Haunting of the Overlook Hotel. Tag Flanagan and Netflix both. Maybe Bad okay. Robot if they have a Twitter account. Just we need to make this happen. I've never wanted anything more. So yes, I really appreciate that, and I feel like I'm part of this journey, and I really hope I do get a paycheck. And can we bring back Victoria? How do you say her name? Pedretti, who's in the first two seasons. She's so good. Um, she wanna... she can be in anything she wants to be. Yeah, she's so fucking good. So yeah, um, so yeah, Flanagan. I know you listen, Flanagan. You've told me you're you're sitting here with me. You're my roommate. Wait, what? Yeah, he's my roommate, and I listen. He's my best friend. Okay, are you? Are, um, you, are you? I am. You know, he does not listen to this podcast. I mean, not to my knowledge. I mean, who knows? You know, maybe but, he does, and we just don't know. Any? Hi, Mike. Um, hi, Mike. Just want yeah. to say hey. He needs the haunting of the Overlook Hotel. It's a mouthful. It needs to happen. Netflix, please, please. And you know what? If you do that, then you know, if you do an entire season, if you do like ten or twelve hours. Then you know what? Go ahead and do Glenn Mazzara's script as a couple of episodes. Yeah, do easy. your Halloran prequel over the course of two episodes. You oh, know, yeah, it could all it could all happen in ten episodes. Yes, we we need to make this episodes. happen. Who who do we need to yell at? Um, Flan, the Flan Man, the Flan stands. That's us. Okay, well he's not going to listen to this anymore. I think but... Jack will show up at some point. Just 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 get him in there. I don't know how. Uh, maybe, I, maybe yeah, I he he's long painting. since retired. I don't think has he. Uh, awesome. Jack Nicholson, yeah, he's he, he, been retired for a decade. I think so. Okay, well, there's always the exception to the rule. Now, isn't there? Um, but this probably isn't it. But yeah. <laughs> um, Jinx, do you think we're ever going to get to see an Overlook series or film? Do you think it's ever going to happen? Um, maybe, you know, I'm certain that we haven't seen the last of this franchise. I know the doctor's sleep definitely underperformed and that's sad, but you know what? Release the director's cut next time. Warner brothers, you pricks. Yeah. It's uh, your fault, buddy. That movie would have had legs had it been the masterpiece 
it, it mm-hmm. is in his director's cut. It, it would have stayed in theaters, damn it. Anyway, um, will we see an Overlook series? I don't know. Maybe we'll see a movie. Maybe we'll see a series. But I feel like we're not done with The Shining World yet. And is that what you'd want as a fan? Would you want to see it continued? Absolutely. Or do you think? Yeah, me too. Um, and I will say, you know, whether that's Flanagan, whether that's uh, Bad Robot. I mean, Bad Robot did a marvelous job with Castle Rock, you know, which is such a weird series in that mm-hmm. it's very faithful to King's characters and his world, but it told completely new stories that he himself did not write. So it's kind of like, in a way, it's it's like fan fiction. But totally. at the same time, like, how cool is that, that we have a television series, even just two seasons of it, but a television series based on uh, an author's works that he didn't actually pin himself while said author is still alive. Like, that's just mad to me. It's and a I little mind it. bending, but it's very cool. And it's kind of sad that we didn't get to see that go for a million seasons and do a million different things. We did because you know the first season played around with uh king's iconography quite a lot in really fascinating ways the second season i think was a big improvement uh not the first season was bad it was great the second season you know touched on uh annie wilkes from misery and lizzie kaplan Mm -hmm. was absolutely amazing as that character and uh it also played around with jerusalem's lot but not in the way you would expect not with vampires what it does instead is kind of marvelous but i will say in the first season, there is a character played by Jane Levy, uh, Mia, from the Evil Dead remake. Or, well, it's not a remake, whatever it is. Evil Dead from 2013 or so. Um, and her character is named Jackie Torrance. Oh. And uh, Jackie is a nickname because everyone knows her crazy Uncle Jack. <gasps> oh. And so there is a setup at the end of the first season that she's actually going to take a road trip and check in uh, or check out rather the Overlook Hotel. And it's like, oh, I really want to see that season. Like, I want to see her character get mixed up. Like, I want to see that sequel. And I mean, yeah. so I yeah. wonder if given that that was Bad Robot, even though it wouldn't have been Hulu, they were shopping around at HBO Max. I don't know what the right situation would be there, but I wonder if Bad Robot would have been able to take the character that originated in their series that aired on another channel, another streamer, and just pulled them into their Overlook series. You know, uh, hmm. I, w- I would love that. I would love to think that they could have done that. I think so. I, 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 they could have done anything. That's what's so brilliant about it. It's too bad. And it sounds like with the way that you're explaining they handled different Stephen King properties in Overlook, they would have done it, but it would have been something like completely in a way that I would never have guessed. Like it maybe not not with ghosts. Maybe it would have been like a totally different way in, which could be cool, too. Yeah. You know, who knows what they would have done? Maybe I know there's very little information out there. Maybe they would have uh, they would have gone back to before the play, the Stephen King prologue, which uh, took place in various time periods. You know, maybe they would have done the Grady twins. Maybe it would have been a sequel. You know, who knows? Like it's uh, the what I love about it is that King's writing is so rich and the worlds that he creates like are so dense that you feel like you could walk around them and live in them. And, you know, 
I, I think that's probably why we have stuff like Castle Rock, why we would have had something like Overlook. You know, you as a reader feel like you can hop into his worlds and just walk around. So why shouldn't other creatives feel like they could get in there and create, you know, their own stories within the worlds that he has sort of laid out. And um, I, for that reason alone, I wish we would have gotten the Overlook. Mm-hmm. We deserve it. So with that said, you and I, officially have greenlit it so people get to work uh jinx if you were hypothetically to escape the dungeon where could people find you on the internet so you can find me on twitter uh it's at jinx 1981 that's j-i-n-x 1981 you can find me on instagram uh posting weird fucked up shots of random things that i find here and there uh you know heavily filtered on <laughs> it's cool. uh, Jinx740941. Uh, otherwise, you can find my writings on uh, Bloody Disgusting. Check out Phantom Limbs there. And uh, otherwise, somebody, please, God, send help. How long has it been? I- Ugh, you, you love it. Get into it. Thank you so much for listening to Development Hell. If you enjoy this podcast, then please do us a major favor of leaving us five stars and writing a positive review. It really makes all the difference in the world. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of Development Hell. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.